Good morning. It is uh, a pleasure and a privilege to be here with, with all of you. Uh, my name is Marlon Harris. I'm the RUF pastor at Mercer University here in Macon. My wife, and Caroline, and I met at Mercer. We met here actually at this church. Uh, we were members of this church in college together, and we got married in this church, and I got ordained in this church. So First Pres has a very, very special place in our hearts, and we are so delighted uh, to be uh, here in Macon to be with you and to be able to worship with you on Sundays and especially I'm thankful for opportunities to, to preach God's Word and to to move into Scripture and share stories about what God is doing on the college campus and explore what God's doing in your own lives and in your own hearts and in the places where he's called you to ministry. So without any further ado, let's hop into Acts 18 verses 1 through 11. I'll read, pray, and we'll begin. <clears throat> Hear now the word of the Lord. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, and he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath, and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments, and he said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titus Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household, and many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. Let us pray. Lord, the flowers fade. The things in this world pass. But you tell us that your word, your will, your actions, your decrees are always accomplished. Lord, we pray that you would accomplish exactly what you want this morning in our hearts, that we would not just leave with more information about you, but that we would leave with an enlivened passion for your kingdom, for your mission, for what you've called us into as ambassadors and sons and daughters in your kingdom, that you would spur us on toward love and good deeds. And we pray that you would do this through the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. God is at work. This is something that I heard constantly from my campus minister when I was a student at Mercer, and this is now something as a campus minister that I cling to on a daily basis. God is at work. This simple truth is dear to me because it reminds me that when I run face first into the walls of my own limits, of my own ignorance, of my own incompetence, 
and even into the walls of my own sin, that God is still doing things that I have no idea about. That God is still up to something. His will, as we know, is not thwarted. He will reveal what he wants, and he will accomplish exactly what he wants when he wants. And by his grace, we are told throughout the Bible that God uses flawed, incompetent, impatient, sinful, quarreling, redeemed people like you and me to do this. And he uses this process to humble us and to sanctify us, to make us more like his son Jesus. And this, my friends, is ministry. This is missions, something that we are all called to. And it's something that we are called to for God's glory, for our good, and for the good of other people, regardless of where God has placed you. And I would submit to you that the only way we can live out this calling without being crushed under the weight of our own guilt and shame and inevitable failure is by returning again and again to this simple but monumental truth that God is at work. In this account of Paul in Corinth, we see the ups and the downs of ministry. We see the joy, the frustration, the fear, the anger, the sadness, the confusion that accompanies the work of God's people engaging in the world and the places where God has put them. These are emotions that we have all felt at some time or another as we attempt to love and move toward and share the gospel with, with friends, with family members, with co-workers, with neighbors, sometimes with success, but most of the time with great awkwardness, uh, most of the time uh, with what feels like failure. And it would be failure if we assumed that our efforts and our actions were the only thing that mattered and how we encounter other people in the world. But today I want to do two simple things as we look at this passage. I want to work through the story about what, what Paul is doing in Corinth, and what we see happening, and consider how it intersects with our own lives. Paul begins in Corinth the way that he usually begins ministry. He goes to the synagogue, and he preaches on the Sabbath, and he tries to persuade the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks in verse 4 that Jesus was the Christ. And there is no report in verse 4 that there are many, if any, conversions at this point. What the, the, the passage suggests is that initially in Corinth, Paul is not successful in the ways that he wishes he was successful. And then we see Silas and Timothy in verse 5 show up, and they, we are told that they come from Macedonia. And immediately after Paul and Timothy show up, we're told that Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And so what this suggests is that when Paul and Timothy show up, they come bearing financial gifts for Paul so that he no longer has to work as a tent maker and only do gospel ministry on the Sabbath, but now he can devote himself, right? That's what it means when he was occupied. He was able to devote himself with the word testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And I don't think it's a stretch to consider that Paul would have thought the same kinds of things that you and I would have thought in this moment, right? Up to this point, we, we have good reason to believe that there hasn't been a, a large or if maybe even any convergence in Paul's ministry in Corinth at this point. 
And Paul's probably thinking, now that I have these resources, now that I have this time to fully devote myself to the ministry of the gospel, now I will begin to see fruit. Now I will begin to see conversions. Now I will begin to see God doing the things that I want him to do. If I put in more time, surely I will get the results that I want. There's a sense of hopefulness when, when Silas and Timothy arrive. And immediately out of this hopeful expectation of big things comes disappointment and frustration and anger on Paul's part. In verse 6, the very next verse we're told, the Jews opposed and reviled him. They opposed and reviled him, and he shook out his garments. And he said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. He's saying, I've done everything I can do, right? This is on you if you're not going to receive Christ, if you're not going to receive Jesus as the Christ. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. When Paul devotes more of his time to his ministry, he gets worse results. Paul's expectations are shattered, and unmet expectations equals disappointment. And disappointment oftentimes leads to anger. And this is what we see happening with Paul. We know that Paul deeply loves his Jewish brothers and sisters, which is why I think we see him so angry and dejected here, right? Paul, in Romans 9, says that he would go so far as to wish that he could cut himself off from Christ and consign himself to hell if he could do it for the sake of his fellow Jewish brothers and sisters. Paul loves the Jews. He loves his kinsmen deeply, and he is deeply disappointed that God is not doing the things that he wants him to do among the Jews. And so Paul leaves the synagogue in anger, and he moves into the house to do his ministry in the house of, of a man named Titus Justus, who happens to live next door to the synagogue. And Paul is under the impression that God is not working in the Jewish synagogue, and so he must go to the Gentiles. And immediately after this shift happens, the ruler of the synagogue, a man named Crispus, is converted. And we're told his whole family is converted, and then many others are converted. The ruler of the synagogue was not the rabbi, Derek Thomas, the theologian, author, and pastor. He says the ruler of the synagogue organized the services of worship and customarily would be both wealthy and a person of some status in the Jewish community. The reaction among the Jewish community next door must have been one of outrage and horror upon his conversion. You see, Paul discovers something in this moment. He discovers that God has been at work all along. Paul has, God has been at work all along in Paul's ministry, even though Paul was not seeing the results that he wanted, even though Paul was frustrated with what, what God was not doing and the ways that God was not lining up with his expectations and his timing. And then we're told Paul has a vision, which is really interesting. Surely Paul is encouraged by these conversions. But this vision that we see of Jesus speaking to Paul shows us that even in this moment, even when these good things are happening, Paul's emotional state is very complex because Christ tells Paul in a vision, do not be afraid. He tells him, do not be afraid. Why would Jesus say that to Paul? Because Paul is afraid. It's that simple. This, this shows us that Paul feels fearful 
that he feels tempted to act on his fear. The outrage of the Jews will eventually reach fever pitch. In the following passage, if you go on to read the rest of Acts 18, you'll see that the Jews try to have Paul put to death for blasphemy. But Christ goes on to say to him, Go on speaking. Keep doing what I've called you to do. Trust me in the process. Do not be silent, for I am with you. Jesus is saying, I am at work. I'm with you in this, even though you don't always know what I'm doing. And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. Jesus says to Paul, do not act on your fears. Do not depart from Corinth. I am asking you to play the long game, to trust my timing, to be patient and diligent. Why? Because I am at works in ways that you do not know about. I have many in this city who are my people, and I'm going to use you to bring them into my family. But you're going to have to trust me in that process and let me work and be faithful to what I've called you to do and let me take care of bringing these people into my family. So Paul does not submit to his fear, but we're told that he trusts Christ and he stays in Corinth for one and a half years as he eagerly and curiously searches out these people that God has said belong to him. His, this is his second longest stay on any of his missionary journeys. This is an uncommon length of time for Paul to stay in a city, and it took Jesus intervening in a vision to convince Paul that he needed to stay. You see, in this story, we see God laying out principles that I would say apply to our own call to ministry as God's ministers. We are all ministers of the gospel. Most importantly, we see God plainly telling Paul that he's at work in ways that Paul doesn't know about. And he calls Paul into eager curiosity, to eagerly search out through faithful, patient gospel ministry those who God has set his love upon from eternity past. You see, while there are many things we could talk about in this passage, I want to focus on one eager curiosity. God calls all of his people into eager curiosity, I would submit to you, that it must be founded upon the truth that God is at work. There are people in our communities, in our families, in our churches, who belong to God. And God, in his sovereign providence, has chosen and called each one of us into participation in reaching and equipping these men and women for his glory, for their good, for our growth and encouragement. Eager curiosity is our greatest tool in ministry. I tell this to my students all the time. If you want to do ministry, you must learn to be curious about what God is doing in your life, about what he's doing in the lives of others. Because the greatest enemy of, min of ministry is apathetic indifference. The greatest enemy of ministry is prideful presumption, assuming that we know what's going on in someone's life or in our life, rather than curiously seeking out what God is up to, but that we might not initially know or understand. The assumption that, that this is true is made throughout the Bible, that God works through his people. God expands his people, his kingdom through people exercising eager curiosity about their circumstances and about the people around them, 
all of which have come about by God's sovereignty. This is deeply rooted in our theological tradition as Presbyterians, as Reformed people. We emphasize the sovereignty of God, but our tradition also emphasizes this thing called God's providence. In the Westminster Confession of Faith, in chapter 5, paragraph 2, the, the Westminster Fa- Confession of Faith says, although in relation to the foreknowledge and decree of God, talking about God's sovereignty, he is the first cause of all things, all things come to pass immutably and infallibly. Nothing can come to pass without God's sovereign will. But at the same time, they say, yet, by the same providence, God orders all these things to fall out according to the nature of second causes, either necessarily, freely, or contingently. This is huge for us to understand if we are going to fully embody our Reformed and Presbyterian heritage and theology. Yes, God is sovereign, but God works out his sovereign will through his people, through secondary causes. You and I are secondary causes that God uses to accomplish his sovereign, eternal will. And we have the privilege of participating in God's sovereign plans. God uses us and calls us to exercise eager curiosity, to discover what he is up to and take part in it. When I was an RUF intern at Emory University, in my third year, I met a freshman named Nate. He and I met in an activity fair, and we started hanging out. Nate was not a Christian, but we started meeting, and one thing that I discovered very quickly was that Nate loved video games. I'm sure all of you love playing video games, right? Uh, Nate loved video games, and so we would spend a lot of time just talking, and he would just tell me about the video games that he was playing, about the video games that he had played, and while he would come to Bible studies, while he would come to RUF meetings, I at times felt frustrated in my time with Nate because I felt like we were not making progress. I felt like we weren't making intellectual progress in his knowledge of the gospel or his interest in talking about the gospel. And so the fall semester comes to an end, the spring semester comes, and I continue meeting with Nate. And one day we sit down and he says, hey, Marlon, I wanted to tell you something. And I said, what? What's going on? He said, Marlon, I became a Christian. I became a Christian. And I was like, shocked. And I said, Nate, how, like, how did you become a Christian? Like, what, what was it that allowed the gospel, that, what is it that made the gospel make sense to you? And he said, this, this, is, this is just unbelievable to me at the time, and still unbelievable, but he said, it was this video game I played. He said, in this game, there was this, this hero who had to sacrifice himself to defeat this evil force and save the world. And I realized when I was playing that game that that is what I need, and that is what Jesus does for me. Shocking. And I didn't know it at the time, and Nate didn't know it. But God, in his sovereignty, had used video games to give him categories to one day understand the gospel. And Nate had no idea, I had no idea, but God knew exactly what he was doing, and he allowed me to have the privilege of taking part in that, even though I did not feel like we were making progress. Even though he was not doing things the way that I felt like like they needed to be done, God was at work. And thanks to my campus minister pushing me to continue to be faithful and curious about Nate, God worked through that and saved him. 
God's message in Acts 18 shows us that, that God is at work in our lives. It reminds me of the, the parables of the lost sheep and the coin in Luke 15. The parable of the lost sheep, Jesus says, if a man has a hundred sheep and he has 99, but one is lost, he goes out and he searches. He is eager and curious to search out and find this sheep. If a woman loses a valuable coin, she diligently sweeps the house in the room to find the coin. She eagerly searches it out. She curiously looks in all the places it could be, and in both cases, when the sheep is found and when the coin is found, there is a celebration. And at the end of that passage in Luke 15, God says, uh, there is joy before angels of God over one sinner who repents. Jesus understood what God revealed to Paul in Acts 18. God has placed you and me exactly where you are in order to partake in his work of reaching and equipping his people through eager, searching curiosity because God is at work in your life and in the lives of the people around you. God has ordained that the lost sheep be found, but the shepherd must still go out and look for it. God has ordained that the coin will be found, but the woman must still light a lamp and seek diligently until he finds it. God has ordained that many in Corinth will be safe, will be saved, but Paul must go on speaking and not be silent. That's God's providence working out his eternal decrees through his people. In Romans 10, verses 14 through 15, Paul writes, How then can they call on him in whom they have not believed? How can they call on Jesus if they don't believe in him? And how are they to believe in whom they have not heard? How can they call on Jesus if, they, if they've never heard about him? And how can they hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. How will people hear the gospel unless you invite them to church? And how will you invite people to church unless you look up and out into your neighborhood, into your workplace, into your schools, into your communities, and begin to engage them, to get to know them, so that they feel loved and cared for and want to go to church when you invite them? Have you ever asked yourself, why has God put me here? Why has God put me in this neighborhood? Why has God put me in this person's life? Do we ask those questions of eager curiosity, or do we just assume that they're there to annoy us or frustrate us, and we try to avoid them? Are we eagerly curious about the places that God has put us? Might there be people in this city, in this neighborhood, in your workplace, people who are God's people, but we don't even know it yet, and neither do they. Do we look in these places with eager curiosity, or do we instead put our head down, too busy with our own agendas and our own priorities? Do we stifle our imagination about what God might do through us if we picked our heads up and began to curiously engage the world around us? I would submit to you that this is something that every single one of us is called to as God's people. This is how each of us are called into missions, into ministry, into the places that God has strategically put you, right? If we are Reformed, if we're Presbyterian, we know that nothing is random. We know that God has put each of us where we are for a reason and for a purpose. 
And he has called us to imaginatively and creatively and eagerly and curiously search out what he is up to and the things that he has done and the places that he has put us and the people he has surrounded ourselves with. Our job is not to change hearts. Only God can do that. But God has made it absolutely clear that his people are the instruments that he uses to accomplish his sovereign will, to regenerate men and women and to bring them into our family. This is the thing that most excites God. When Jesus gives these parables in Luke 15, he says, when the, the person is found, when the sheep is found, when the coin is found, when the sinner repents, there is a raging party that is thrown in heaven. Why do we throw the party? Because this is the thing that we get most excited about. Is it the thing that most excites you? Or is it something else? This biblical understanding of where God's sovereignty and our, our role, our human responsibility come together in the doctrine of God's providence provides our lives with deep meaning and significance. Do you feel like your life is meaningless, like it's purposeless? This shows us that that is the farthest thing from the truth. It pra practicing eager curiosity in our daily life opens our eyes and our imaginations to the world around us. It allows us to see that every one of our lives, our vocations, our outings, our interactions are deeply consequential. This doctrine supplies us with a rich treasury of purpose. Whether you are a mom taking your kids to the park or the grocery store, whether you are in business, whether you are a student, whether you are a healthcare worker or a janitor, God is at work. In your life and in the lives of the eternal image of God bearing men and women that you and I rub shoulders with on a daily basis. God is at work. Will you exercise faith and trust in him by being diligent and eager and curious about what he's up to? It may be something as, as simple as introducing yourself to someone you don't know today after this service is over. Asking a few questions and seeing where the conversation goes. It may mean asking someone you already know to get a cup of coffee, to meet them and their kids at a nearby park, or to come to church with you on Sunday, to put yourself in a position to be eager and curious about what God is up to in the lives of those around you, and simply see what God does. You can plant, you can water, but God gives the growth. But he still calls us to plant and water and scatter the seed. God is working. And I would love for you to be curious about how he is doing these things. Is it hard? Yes. Is it counterintuitive? Absolutely. Is it worth it? You bet. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for loving us enough to let us participate in the work that you are doing to redeem and restore this broken and sinful world. Please draw us out of our insular self-centeredness and give us the curiosity and eagerness to look out into the world and consider what you're doing. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.